Hi, it's Alahe Azadi. It's Thursday, July 6th, and today we are going to share another episode of our new podcast series, Field Trip. It's a show that digs into the messy past and uncertain future of the national parks. This time, we're going to Glacier and the surrounding tribal lands, a place once teeming with a majestic animal that, as of last week, is now roaming free again for the first time in a century. This is thanks to a unique partnership years in the making. It's a fascinating and powerful story, and I really wanted to share it with you. Tomorrow, Post Reports will be back to its usual programming. But if you want to hear more from Field Trip, we'll include a link to it in our show notes, or you can look up Field Trip wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, here's the show. It's around sunrise, late summer. I'm in the car with my colleagues, audio producers Bishop Sand and Emma Talkoff, and we're about to drive one of the most famous roads in the country, the Going to the Sun Road in Montana's Glacier National Park. Yeah, scanning the trees for bears, bobcats, yeah. I love this time of day. I feel like it's when places show their true selves without all the bustle and clutter of the day. My whole life, I've been dragging people out of bed to watch the sunrise. But today, we got up early by necessity. Glacier National Park and the Going to the Sun Road in particular are so popular these days that you need a reservation to drive this road. They book up months in advance, and we couldn't get one. So we drive it the only other way you can, by getting up at the crack of dawn and slipping in before the reservations start. So the drive begins by just kind of winding our way through a flat forest. We're like driving through this, like an alley, (laughs) lined with pines. But soon enough, I know it's going to take us up the sides of huge mountains and over the continental divide. Suddenly the road turns and we get this flash. Oh my God, all of a sudden it clears. It starts to open up to these enormous mountains. The peaks are towering over us. They pop in and out of our view like a magic trick. Like they don't look like normal mountains. Mm. They're so jagged. But when you like sharpen a pencil too much. Yeah. And oh. We're starting the climb now. Up and up and up. It feels like an amusement park ride. Thankfully, Bishop volunteered to drive. Yeah, please stay close to like the center. You find yeah, Bishop. that's okay. <laughs> I'm just watching the center. It's like, I can't, oh my I, God. I'm telling myself not, whoa, there's a big bus. Oh dear. It is high. <laughs> Don't move over for it. It is narrow. It is swerving. Oh my God. It is chiseled into the side of a cliff. I notice that the center line is worn on our side. (laughs) Yes. Because everyone's creeping. Please do the same, Bishop. Please. Please. Oh my God. The higher we go, the more the road swerves. I really want to look out at how far we've climbed and at all the mountain peaks around us. 
But I feel dizzy, and I have to keep glancing down at the car floor to steady myself. It's like we're, we're on the side of the mountain. I can see now why you can only drive this section of the road in the summer. Avalanches and rock slides make it too dangerous the rest of the year. Glacier was actually one of the very first parks to allow cars. Construction of the Going to the Sun Road began in 1921 and took more than a decade. The result was this engineering marvel. A 50-mile road running east-west across the park that lifts you up from the lakes and green valleys below and twirls you past waterfalls and alpine flowers and ice-covered peaks. It feels like we've passed... I don't know, like it's this like guarded Eden that we're inside. And, oh, there's a bigcorn sheep. And... Did you guys see anything? What is it? Oh, really? Oh. Where, where, where? It's a bear. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The cars ahead of us just slowed to a stop, and people are getting out to take photos. Yes, bear! <laughs> Show me your backside. <laughs> then they climb back into their cars and keep driving. Three million tourists now come to Glacier each year, and for many of them, the going to the Sun Road is the main draw. But it also makes it very possible to experience this place with your windows literally or figuratively rolled up. Well, let's roll them down and keep driving. Off the going to the Sun Road, out the eastern gate of the park, and onto the Blackfeet Reservation. Much of the rest of our journey is going to take place here, on reservation land just beyond the park boundary. Because in order to get inside the heart of Glacier, you have to go outside it. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Field Trip. All 63 national parks sit on indigenous ancestral lands, including Glacier National Park. They're places Native people called home for thousands of years, but for the past hundred-some years, these places have also been public lands intended to benefit all Americans. Sometimes, that puts Native tribes and the Park Service into conflict. That's certainly been true in Glacier which is why I'm here. In the 1800s, as white settlers moved west, the U.S. government launched a series of campaigns to kill and confine the people who lived in and around what's now Glacier National Park. The Blackfeet, but also the Salish, the Kootenai, and the Pandaray. The U.S. military and local militias massacred hundreds of people. Many others died from illness and starvation. 
Across the plains, soldiers slaughtered somewhere between 30 and 60 million buffalo, a primary food source for the tribes. The buffalo were also enormously important culturally and spiritually, as we'll get into later in the episode. Eventually, with the buffalo almost gone and their people almost gone, the tribes were forced to sign agreements that gave the U.S. government what it wanted all along. The land. In 1895, the government paid the Blackfeet a million and a half dollars for 800,000 acres. The tribe refers to this area as the Ceded Strip. The U.S. essentially drew a line down the shoulder of the Rockies and took the land to the west. The mountains, the emerald lakes, the alpine meadows. Much of that land would eventually become part of Glacier National Park. It left the Blackfeet, the plains, to the east. Today, around 10,000 Blackfeet live there on a million and a half acres of reservation land. They're the only tribe to share a border with Glacier National Park. And so the Blackfeet have a lot to navigate in their relationship with the Park Service. You know, this place was, was our land not that long ago. We drove off the Going to the Sun Road to meet up with Ed DeRosier, a member of the tribe. He takes us to a busy overlook on the reservation. And as he speaks, he gestures across the valley at the ridgeline of mountains inside the national park. Yeah, we get a good uh, perspective of the backbone as it's coming uh, toward us, uh, where we're pretty close to the the valleys that come off of the backbone right here, the divide there. Very um, prominent peak. Ed is 70 years old with long flowing white hair. He was the first person I wanted to seek out on this trip. Before I got here, his name kept coming up in conversations I had with people about the relationship between the park and the tribe. The Blackfeet have had a number of issues with the Park Service over the years, including how the tribe's story gets told inside Glacier, and who gets to profit from the land now. Ed ended up in a fight about both those things. I was just wondering, like, what do you feel and see when you look out across this landscape? You know, the feeling that I try to open myself up to is that I'm just so insignificant on the landscape. And wherever I have walked, if it's climbing a mountain or on a trail or off the beaten path, that my ancestors have walked before me. Ed says he always felt that, that Glacier was home. But in some ways, he also felt alienated from it. And the history here helps explain why. Congress created Glacier National Park in 1910, and soon after, the Great Northern Railway became the first big commercial developer here. This is a promotional video the railroad made in the 1940s. In all the world, there is no region more favored by nature than America's great Northwest. Glacier National Park in Montana, the center and crowning glory of this enchanted playground. The railroad branded Glacier the Alps of America. It is a region ideally suited to vacation activities of all kinds. 
a region of forested hills, high mountains, snow-fed rivers, and lovely lakes. The railroad was trying to sell the West as an alternative vacation destination to wealthy East Coast tourists. So, it Europeanized the park's image. Glacier Park Hotel, one of four picturesque hostelries in the park. The Grand Lodges look like Swiss chalets with gabled balconies and bellhops in lederhosen. That was all here while Ed was a kid, and it's still here today. The older he got, the more he noticed a huge gap between how the tribe saw Glacier and how tourists saw it. Like when he went into the park's bookstore one day looking for something on the Blackfeet. And they had one book on a shelf. It was called Man in Glacier. And I go, okay, it's going to tell all about my people, my ancestry. There were like four pages that talked about fear of evil spirits as Native people quickly came through these mountains and got out of them as quick as they came. There was no recognition of ancient occupation life. It was an insult to read those words. And so so I go, well, they're really a big void here in telling our story. I found a copy of that book. It was published in 1976 by the Glacier Natural History Association in cooperation with the National Park Service. And sure enough, it's a history of human presence in Glacier, and only about 10 of its 85 pages mention Native people. It describes them at one point as, quote, the Blackfoot menace. Seeing that book planted the seed of an idea for Ed. It was an idea for a business, but also an idea that would help correct this narrative and reset the relationship between his tribe and the Park Service. That seed of an idea grew while Ed was working on road repair for the state of Montana. He said this was back in 1991 when he was in his late 30s. And as a supervisor, I was the flag person for all the other guys running the equipment and stop zones and stuff. The job gave him an up-close view of Glacier's booming tourism industry. Every day, he would watch the traffic flowing off the Going to the Sun Road. And so I start counting cars, and, and these red buses would come by, and they were filled with tourists from the Glacier Park Lodges. Even today, you can't miss these little buses inside the park. They're cherry red with big vintage grills. These exact automobiles have been giving tours in Glacier since the 1930s. And so I start kind of thinking, yeah, how many people are on that bus? Okay, and how much does a ticket cost? And how many buses went by today? And I'm going, man, they're making a lot of money. The national parks are big business. Private companies are allowed to operate inside them. And today those companies bring in more than a billion dollars a year. They run things like lodges, kayak rentals, and bus tours. And then I learned that they were talking about Glacier Park, the railroad history, the building of the lodges. And there was this big void of Blackfeet history, of presence of the people that lived and grew up here and their ancestry and their bones are here of their ancestors. And this huge personal connection was vacant from any of the history. So he had an idea. He would offer his own tours and fill in the rest of that history. 
one small hurdle, private businesses that operate inside the park need a license. So to set up a new tour company, Ed would need Park Service permission. He says he went to the Park Service in 1992 with this idea of bringing more of a Blackfeet presence into Glacier. And he said, well, we have a campfire program that we talk to people about. There's one night on bears, one night on eagles. You get Indian night on one night. For a decade, the park had been inviting tribal members to participate in its program, Native America Speaks. It was one of the first parks to do something like this. But that wasn't going to cut it for Ed. I said, well, I got a, I got a proposal. I'm going to start doing tours to share this knowledge, and I'm going to market it at the lodge, and I'm going to market it inside the park. And they said, no, you can't do any of that. They couldn't give him a permit because the park already had an exclusive contract with the company that ran the Red Bus Tours. Ed says the Park Service told him he needed to take it up with the company. Here's how Ed says that conversation went. I give my pitch to the CEO, and he said, you know, we have the business of providing a service of moving people and giving them an interpretive tour. Now, we will put you behind the wheel of one of our buses because you got a good story to tell. You're connected to the Blackfeet, and we're always short on bus drivers. We'll hire you as a bus driver, and you can drive one of our buses. <laughs> and I was insulted by that. Just so you know, we reached out to the company that ran the tours back then, but they said no one from the time still works there. I should mention, too, that a new company runs the Red Bus Tours today. We also reached out to the Park Service. Officials there couldn't confirm details about individual conversations with Ed, but there's no disagreement about what happened next. After that meeting, Ed started his own tour company, without the Park's permission. Ed printed out brochures, he bought a van, and he painted the words Sun Tours on the side of it. Slowly, he started getting some customers. It wasn't consistent, you know, it was like a big day was like four people. But people seemed interested in what Ed had to say. We were really off to a good feeling until the ranger pulled over one of my guides. The ranger gave the guide a $50 ticket. A few days after that, another one of Ed's drivers also got a ticket. A few days after that, Ed was giving a tour when Ed says a park ranger followed him all the way back to the reservation. And I speeded back to my place, drove in my gate, closed the gate, and the ranger knew who I was, and, and he pulled up out front, and he said, uh, i got to write you a ticket, Ed. And I said, well, I'm not coming out because this is my property. And if you come in, you're trespassing. So you'll just have to mail it to me. Mm. And so he mailed me a ticket for $50. (laughs) But Ed knew this kind of dance around the park rangers wasn't a good long-term strategy. And so I went down to my other friend who was on the tribal council. And he said, you need to come to a tribal council meeting and tell the council what happened to you. So, Ed says, that's what he did. And so there was a big room with probably 50 people. And so I got up and I said, you know, I'm just trying to do a business. The park service is um, not cooperating. And the council members spoke at different times and said, 
they should recognize that. You know, we can't take this. We should have a protest. And I said, yeah, I want to protest this. And so word spread like wildfire. The next weekend, Ed and about 100 Blackfeet supporters gathered in front of one of the big Swiss chalet-style park hotels. And I had a lot of relatives, a lot of family, and they're supporting me. And, and uh, man, it was just a great feeling of being in a, in a tribe, in, in being in a family. We made signs and we picketed Glacier Park Lodge. We claimed the park was racist, that there was a monopoly. They didn't hire our local people. They were eliminating small business. And, and we had a drum group. We played the honor song. And we got the attention. They held a second protest at another park hotel, too, and they got immediate results. Ed says the next day he was invited to a meeting between the park superintendent, its advisory board, and the CEO of the tour company. And he said, you know, this could turn into a movement that could not look good for us. And he says, we don't want trouble, and we will license you as a subconcessor under our license. And I said, great, man, that gets the wheels on the bus turning, but that's not where I'm stopping. Hearing your story, it sounds like you wanted to fight for something more than just you and your business. The big picture was that as we grew up here, we've always been shut out of the park. It was never our park, never our land. Ed fought the tickets that had been issued to him and the other guides for months. He was willing to bring it all the way up to the Supreme Court. He says it was important to him to establish that the Blackfeet had a legal right to make a living in Glacier. But it never got that far because the charges were eventually dropped. Now when you look to your left in that little white thing coming out of Dusty Star Mountain, that is St. Mary's Falls. This is one of Ed's tour guides, Kevin Kicking Woman. He also goes by Kevin Corner Post. Ed eventually got a full license to operate within Glacier. He says that, as far as he knows, this made him one of the few Native people to operate a company inside any national park. Although the Park Service doesn't track those numbers. The one just a little bit after that is called Little Chief. More than 30 years later, Sun Tours is still operating. Ed's fleet of buses drive the going to the Sun Road every day in the summer, giving tourists a very different experience in the park. You stand and you sing these thank you songs and they hold their gifts out and they dance and they hold those gifts. So this is one of the songs. In other words, Ed won the right to tell the Blackfeet's story inside Glacier and a share of the profits private companies make there. For more than 100 years now, there have been many different versions of Ed. Members of the Blackfeet from one decade to the next who've pushed for more tribal rights inside Glacier. Ed's story was a victory. But so much of the Blackfeet story here has been one of loss. 
We leave Ed and drive north on the reservation to a place where that feeling of loss is still palpable. Chief Mountain. In 1895, when the Blackfeet signed that agreement with the U.S. government and drew that line down the shoulder of the Rockies, Chief Mountain was split in half. One half ultimately became part of Glacier National Park. The other half was kept by the Blackfeet. I've read and heard so much about the significance of this mountain, not just because it straddles these two worlds today, but because it's an extremely sacred place for the Blackfeet. We pull over at a small dirt turnout near the base of the mountain to meet two women who can tell us more about the fraught relationship between the tribe and the park, both because they know the history and because they live it. Welcome to our territory. Thank you. Theda Newbreast works on issues around Native American health and wellness, including dealing with historical trauma of cultural genocide. Her Blackfeet name is Makoyo Sokoyi. It means Wolf's Trail or the Milky Way. Theda's my neighbor, but we live across the lake from each other. <laughs> Rosalind Lapierre is a professor and ethnobotanist. She's written extensively on Blackfeet spirituality. They're both wearing long, colorful skirts. They have Rosalind's dog with them. Her name translates to Child of Sasquatch. (laughs) Visitors can actually summit Chief Mountain from the National Park side, but Rosalind says the top itself is so sacred that no one should step foot on it. So instead, they're going to bring us to a special spot partway up where we can get a closer view. I think you need to, you're looking at, it's like trying to talk about something so far away. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and you should just feel it. Yeah. And you since you're already here, we shouldn't miss that opportunity. Theda so, says we can all get in her pickup truck to drive the rest of the way up. So, uh, who wants to ride in back? I climb up. Okay. Theda pulls her long braids to the side so she can strap a holster around her waist. Then she slides a gun into it. She has the truck radio blaring. I don't know guns, so what is what is that gun? It's a um, nine millimeter, 15 round. I just keep one round so I can boom, 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 boom 15 times. Grizzly bears, I don't mind. Stomping moose or mountain lions is what Mountain lions, I have more fear. Mm-hmm. I'm more but, afraid of moose than anything. Yeah, really? they'll stomp you. They'll, they'll, they'll stomp just you stomp. Death. They'll uh, just kill you. Yeah. It's boing like that. It's They're frightening. I think about how, in the past, there would have been buffalo up here to look out for as well. We start driving. And, uh, yeah, we're going to start climbing up toward the base of the mountain. <laughs> and they have warmed us. It will be quite bumpy. Woo! <laughs> no tourists know this road. So only usually our people come up this road. Yeah, I mean, there is no one else around here. It's just us and the woods and a really rough dirt road. Well, I don't think it's not road. It's like carved tire tracks uh, through the woods. As we climb higher, I get these little glimpses of colorful pieces of cloth tied here and there around trees. They seem to be leading us somewhere. 
We bump along, higher and higher. There are butterflies dancing around the truck. I see strips of pink cloth, blue, yellow. There are more and more and more. So many of the trees around us now are wrapped with them. The climb levels out. It feels like we should be quiet up here. We were just in the midst of the trees, and all of a sudden it opened up to this, this clearing. There's no farther we can go. In front of us are the frames of two sweats, sweat lodges, made out of bent branches. This clearing is full of wildflowers. They're as colorful and abundant as the prayer cloths, which are now all over the trees around us like confetti. So the colors you see here, the older ones have been here for decades. The fresh ones, like we just, like there's two sweats down there. One is fresh. So they just did a ceremony here. So they probably fasted for four days, did their prayers, did their songs. And when they come out, they sweat before they leave. Theda starts toward a small footpath through the trees. There are small glass beads on the ground that we're carefully stepping over. Theda says they represent tears, little offerings made to release pain. We're in our, our, our main territory with what you call the Rocky Mountains. We call it um, Mokake, and it's the backbone of the world. You'll talk to any Blackfeet that lives in New York and Los Angeles or Seattle, and they go, I gotta go home to the mountains. Even when my father was dying from cancer, he thought he wanted to be buried where he was. And um, his mother came in a dream that night and just went. So he called us the next morning and said, come get me. Because if you aren't buried next to this backbone in this territory, you can't come visit it when you die. The spirit can't come back here and visit and you might be stuck. This whole line of mountains is the backbone. But the one we're about to see, it's the head. When the Blackfeet signed that 1895 treaty, the leader of the tribe was Chief White Calf. And his haunting words at the time were, Chief Mountain is my head. Now my head is cut off. We tuck around a bend, brushing aside pine branches, and then there it is. Oh, wow. Chief Mountain. The mountaintop rising in front of us looks so different from all the other peaks around here. Its sides rise up at right angles, and it has a broad, flat, almost smooth top. There's also... Something happening with the light and the shadows or the curvature of the stone, maybe. Theda says she sees a dancer on it. I see a face. Wow. Maybe this is why you left your baby. <laughs> so I could experience this. Yeah. 
Oh, wasn't it so beautiful? I had been telling Theda and Rosalind that this trip was the first time I'd been away from my baby. And maybe it's that, or maybe it's because of the prayer flags and the glass tears, I don't know, but I start to cry. You know, yeah, let your tears fall, because this is a good place <laughs> to heal. Let your tears fall. Oh. It's good to look at the mountain and you'll see things because I think we see things that are meant for us to see you know and uh because the mountain talks to you I start thinking about how many national parks contain sacred native sites the waters that flow through the Grand Canyon are sacred to the Havasupai the peak of Kilauea in Hawaii's Volcanoes National Park, that's home to the fire goddess Pele. And this, right here in Glacier, is home to the Blackfeet deity, Thunder. I wonder what it is that, regardless of time or culture, we as humans feel such a deep pull to so many of the same places. We spend a few minutes looking up at Chief Mountain. We're all quiet. Then we start walking again. Pay attention. Just around. We always, uh, it's good to make sound. In our family, we always just go, oh! <laughs> and so you're letting the animals know that you're just coming. Rosalind directs our attention now to the pine needles. My fingers brush through them as we walk the narrow path. So this is subalpine fir, which is what we call sweet pine. It's used for religious purposes. It's used for medicinal purposes. And one of the main things that gets collected is the resin, mm. which is super sticky. <laughs> Rosalind harvests plants both here and on the national park side. She uses them for food, medicine, and religious ceremonies. She studied for a long time under her aunt and grandmother. The plants are their physical connection to the spiritual world. But there have been issues. So like even when we went up to get sage a couple days ago, there was white people telling my mom that she couldn't pick anything. Like visitors or parks? Yeah, they're employees. going, you can't, you can't do that. They're telling my, my Indian mother... And she goes, have you read your treaty lately? <laughs> when the Blackfeet signed away their land in 1895, they took a lot of pains to ensure they kept certain rights on it. The right to hold ceremonies, the right to hunt and fish, the right to gather timber and plants, the right to travel freely through the area. And the government agreed to those terms. But when Glacier National Park was established in 1910, it initially revoked most of those rights. The government said that national park rules superseded the terms of the treaty, and you can't hunt or gather in national parks. In the eyes of many Blackfeet, those rights were taken from them unlawfully. And so, the federal government and the tribe have been arguing about this ever since. Over time, the legal situation has changed, in some ways. 
For example, Glacier National Park now allows tribal members to gather plants if they file for a permit. The Park Service says that without a permit, people gathering plants might get stopped by park law enforcement. Rosalind says that disproportionately affects women because they're the ones who traditionally gather plants. She and Theda operate as if the 1895 treaty is still the law of the land. I'm never going to get a permit from the federal government to harvest on my own traditional territory. That's, that ain't happening. We should be able to harvest anywhere within our you know, traditional territories. And so if that includes the park, that includes the park. Not only does Rosalind say they think the original terms of their agreement should hold, they also think it's wrong that the tribes aren't fully in charge of managing Glacier National Park. Like, we can manage. I'm not the only person with a PhD. Theta's not the only person with a master's degree. Um, You know, the Blackfeet and the Salish on both sides were very highly educated. Um, We have a lot of experience. You know, I've worked in environmental studies for 10 years. Um, You know, I think it's just a joke. It, not only just a joke, it's kind of, it, it is kind of a slap in the face, you know, and insulting. It's clear, like, how passionate you are about this. Yeah. I'm curious, is it, like, <laughs> is it hopeful, passionate, or pessimistic about <laughs> I cannot the imagine the federal government ever giving up control of very much. So, not hopeful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be really, really surprised. Um, if they gave up any level of control. Um, When you have a Native American president, when you have a female president and you have a Native American vice president and you have an indigenous council and you have an indigenous house and you have an indigenous senate and an indigenous Supreme Court, maybe. What we do have right now, for the first time ever, is a Native American Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, and a Native American Director of the National Park Service, Chuck Sams III. So it's possible that there's a bigger window of opportunity right now than there ever has been before. I've met with a number of tribes since I've been here, and most of them will tell me, for the first time, you have somebody who's not just saying no. My conversation with Director Sams after the break. After spending time in Glacier talking with people like Ed and Rosalind and Theda about tensions between their tribe and the park, I really wanted to zoom out. I know there are stories like theirs playing out across the national parks. So I went to meet with National Parks Director Chuck Sams at the Department of the Interior in Washington, D.C. This is Director Sams. This is Lillian. So nice to meet you. His office walls are covered in art, including contemporary versions of some iconic National Parks posters. So those are reimagined poster cards, and I just love the way the two artists I worked on did them, that they just captured my eye. There are four flags hanging, too. The American flag, the Oregon state flag, a Park Service flag, and a flag for the Umatilla Indian Nation. He's an enrolled member. Director Sams tells me he was shocked when a White House liaison first approached him to lead the agency. And I said, who put you up to this? 
whose joke is this? And she goes, no, this is a real question. Do you have any interest in being the 19th director of the National Park Service? So it came out as a surprise. I always had conflicts with the Department of Interior. I spent a good portion of my career throwing rocks on the outside of the Department of Interior. To explain what he means by throwing rocks, it helps to back up a bit. He was born in Portland, Oregon in 1970 and grew up about three hours east of there on the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Uh, growing up, I understood very early on that uh, my responsibility was to flora and fauna. Our creation story tells me that my eyes are made of eagle, my skin is made of elk, my veins are made of the plants, and therefore those all contributed to me as becoming a human being. And in return, I must be a protector of both the flora and fauna. He says when he was young, he visited the Grand Canyon and other national parks with his family. Like Ed, he noticed the Native American perspective wasn't always included in the way parks told their stories. And as he got older, he ended up having even bigger frustrations with the Interior Department. Can I ask, what were some of the rocks that you were throwing? You know, it was about co-stewardship and the ideals of co-management of resources. Co-stewardship and co-management are ideas getting a lot of attention from the Interior Department today. But it wasn't always that way. According to Director Sams, co-stewardship is essentially partnering with tribes. For example, in Yosemite, where the park has brought in indigenous expertise on prescribed burns. Co-management is when certain responsibilities are officially turned over to the tribes. That's much rarer. Both of these ideas have had to overcome decades of resistance from the Interior Department, he tells me. There was pushback initially from that, both internal and external, about co-management. A lot of that resistance is not understanding what tribes are. And I ask your listeners to also think back, what did they learn about tribes growing up? Most of it is about a historical context, and there's no recognition that they are a sovereign, that they are modern governments under themselves that most tribes are very complex. And because there isn't really been that education in the American public, there's been a misunderstanding of what tribes could actually contribute to co-stewardship and co-management. Director Sams knows how tough the path to co-management has been because his tribe actually played a role in one of the first examples of it in the country. I come from a salmon people, Waikanish Naknuit Lumu. We call ourselves the keepers of the salmon. Here's how it started. The Umatilla was one of four tribes along the Columbia River that fought the government in court in the 1960s and 70s for violating their treaty rights. They called them the salmon wars. They're also called the fish wars. The tribes ended up winning these landmark cases that secured their traditional rights to fish for salmon. The rulings also gave the tribes legal authority to help maintain and restore the fisheries. Director Sams eventually became one of the people doing that work. I mean, in my 30 years prior to joining the National Park Service, I'd done co-management, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. But he says the Interior Department needed regular reminders to actually co-manage and treat the tribes as equal partners. I'd spent a good portion of my career throwing rocks saying, you have an obligation under federal law, not under just tribal law, but also under federal law. That's part of why he was so surprised when he got the call about leading the Park Service. Chuck Sams became the director in December 2021. He was sworn in by Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland. She's the first Native American to ever serve as a cabinet secretary. 
So can I ask, what was that kind of the heart of what you really hoped you would be able to do as a director of these national parks? I've met with a number of tribes since I've been here, and most of them will tell me, for the first time, you have somebody who's not just saying no. I'm like, no, I'm not, because I'm open to those ideas. We're open for that discussion. We're open for that debate. There's no reason for us to shut it down. This is actually a Biden administration priority. A month before Director Sams was sworn in, Secretary Holland signed an order instructing the Interior Department to actively seek out opportunities to collaborate with tribes. Given there are more than 500 federally recognized tribes and more than 400 National Park Service units, not just parks, but also national monuments, national seashores, it's a complex undertaking. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. That relationship we might have with the Nez Perce will be different than the relationship we have with the Umatilla tribe or the Yakima Nation. That's just the complexity of American law and the system that we live in. There are more than 80 co-stewardship arrangements between tribes and the Park Service already. But so far, only four co-management agreements. I should note that not everyone agrees that these are perfect solutions. You heard how Rosalind put it earlier. In her opinion, the tribes shouldn't be partners in managing parkland. They should have full control. The Park Service doesn't have the authority to give ownership of the land back to Native tribes. But I wanted to know if Director Sams could see a day when the agency gives full management of a park like Glacier back to Native people the way Rosalind wants but doubts could ever happen. So you could see maybe one day where a national park unit is managed by a tribe. Potentially, yes. I was very fortunate to go down last year to New South Wales in Australia to see where uh, the New South Wales government has returned land ownership and title back to the Aboriginal people, where the Aboriginal people are managing the park. We're seeing that happen in Canada, where any new national park that is being created must first have the consent of the tribe and the Native people live closest to it before a new national park can be created. We're seeing this around the world. Could that happen here in the United States? Absolutely. These landscapes were managed. There's this large ideal that there's wilderness, the ideal wilderness. As I've traveled across Indian country in my work uh, and met with over 200 tribes, very few of them have a word for wilderness. And if it is, it's called home. And while there are a number of tribes that were agriculturalists, every tribe was a horticulturalist. What does that mean? It means that they were actively engaged in managing all these different species, whether that was elk, antelope, buffalo, moose, did not matter. Those things were important. Bringing that knowledge to the forefront, asking tribes and having engaged with them will help us manage these places better as the Park Service. When I was in Glacier late last summer, I went to see one of these experiments in co-stewardship playing out for myself. On the Blackfeet Reservation, about 20 miles east of the park, there's a place called Buffalo Spirit Hills Ranch. Driving there, we passed long stretches of prairie lined with cattle fences. Then we turned through a gate and followed a set of worn tire tracks up a hill. 
the mountain cradle of Glacier feels so far away. The wind just whips across these grasslands. Kids and their families have been meeting at this ranch all week. It's part of a camp to help kids learn more about the Blackfeet language and culture and buffalo. A little boy comes up to me holding a bucket and smiling. What are we looking at exactly? What is that? The belly of the cow they butchered yesterday. Wow. It's part of a butchered buffalo. The kids are learning about their long role as a food source for the Blackfeet. The tribe is working hard to restore their connection to these animals, and we're here looking for the person in charge of bringing the buffalo back to this area. Are you Irvin? Yes, I am. Hi. This is Irvin Carlson. It is a little windy. I'm wondering if we can, like, we could even hop in our car or something. I don't know if that'd be totally weird. Yeah, is that okay? Yeah. Irvin is the president of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, a group of 83 native tribes across the United States that are trying to return buffalo to the landscape. In many cases, they're working with national parks to do that. More tribes are joining every year. To us, as tribal people, buffalo have been everything, you know, practically like our economy. They were our food, our clothing, our lodging, uh, tools, and parts used for our ceremonies. So they were, they were our existence. The near eradication of the buffalo in the late 1800s was devastating for the tribe. You know, our language, our way of religion, um, land, um, we lost all of those things. In the 1870s, some of the few remaining buffalo in the Blackfeet herd were captured and eventually sold to the Canadian government. For more than a century, the connection between the Blackfeet and these buffalo was lost. But not that long ago, something kind of amazing has happened. With the help of a few conservation organizations, in 2016, more than 80 buffalo calves were moved from Canada back to the Blackfeet Nation. And so it was a big, the story is that that was a big circle for those animals. These buffalo are direct descendants of the ones that lived alongside the Blackfeet in the 1800s. The tribe welcomed the herd back to the reservation with a ceremonial blessing. Bringing them back is, is my, my way, my passion of really bringing back a part of our culture and bring back these animals that everybody appreciates now. Then a few years ago, the tribe approached Glacier National Park with an idea. They wanted to let them loose, to roam both the plains of the reservation and the mountains of Glacier. The park's leadership agreed. Since then, Irvin and his team and the Park Service have been working together to make sure the area is a safe habitat for the buffalo. They both tell me this project is an example of what a new kind of collaboration can look like, along the lines of what Chuck Sams has been trying to foster. This isn't just Native people getting a seat at the table. This is the tribe setting the agenda. There are about 80 buffalo around us right now. We see them, dark dots in the distance. They're grazing out in these cattle pastures. They're a big, majestic animal. 
and uh, I don't know, there's something about them that you just feel a real presence, you know, when you're with them. I guess there was one point there before I was getting kind of, uh, maybe it should say, kind of stingy or whatever. I did. I thought, well, I don't know if I want to put these animals up there, um, and especially if the fences aren't good, they're gone. I don't want to see that, so I, I just want to keep them here, you know. Mm -hmm. I, then one day we were there, and Chief Mountain is very sacred. And so I was standing there looking out at the, the, you know, the ground there. And then it hit me right there. Those animals need to be here, and they need to be here as soon as possible. So that Chief Mountain area told me that, so now I'm anxious to get them there. Yeah. In June of 2023, just two days before we published this episode, Irvin and other members of the Blackfeet finally started to do just that. They loaded about 50 buffalo into livestock trailers and transported them to a spot on the reservation not far from Chief Mountain. They let them out of the trailers into a pen to give the calves a chance to mother up, as one Blackfeet councilman described it to us. Then they opened the gates of the pen and let them go. Members of the tribe watched as a mix of big buffalo and tiny buffalo calves galloped out across the plains and toward Chief Mountain. In that moment, for the first time in more than a century, the Blackfeet returned to living alongside a free-roaming herd of buffalo. There will be buffalo inside Glacier National Park now, too. I start thinking about how incredible it could be to see a buffalo while driving along the Going to the Sun Road. So, like, you know, if you go over there now and see bears or mountain goats, you could one day, maybe soon, also yeah. see we're just a, wild buffalo yeah, there. You see wild buffalo there, too, yeah. Irvin says he spent a long time thinking about the day when the first buffalo climbs its way up through the trees, past the prayer cloths, to Chief Mountain. Just to eventually see them out there, it's really emotional for me. Yeah, they weren't wanted here on their own land. We weren't wanted here on our own land. But the buffalo are still here and we're still here. Next time on Field Trip. Being in Glacier, I've been thinking a lot about boundaries, about the lines that have been drawn around the parks. That's not the way nature works. And in the next place we'll go, it's clear. What happens outside the park has a huge effect downstream. This was not established as a pristine national park. 
And so for decades now, we've been working to bring back what we can of, of the clean water of the Everglades. It was like, we're screwed if we keep going down this path. And we don't know if we can do anything about it, but we're damn sure not gonna sit around and do nothing. Field Trip was reported and produced by me, Lillian Cunningham, Bishop Sand, and Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Robin Amer and Theo Balcom. Additional editing by Renita Jablonski, Juliet Eilprin, Dana Hedgepeth, Krissa Thompson, and Courtney Kahn, who is also our projects editor. Copy editing by Mike Sorelli. Fact-checking for this episode by Nicole Pasilka and Emma Talkoff. Sound design and mixing by Jim Briggs. We had additional production support from Sam Baer. The series includes original music by Decoded Forests, and our credits theme is by Ilani Music. Field Trip's show art is by Kati Huertas. Archival tape courtesy of Periscope Film. Special thanks to Councilman Lauren Monroe Jr., who provided recordings of The Buffalo, and thanks also to Allison Michaels, Arjun Singh, and Rob Rosenthal. Now that you've heard the episode, there's more to see. Find By the Way guides and more stories on the national parks at WashingtonPost.com slash travel. This work would not have been possible without the support of Washington Post subscribers. If you are not yet a subscriber, you can unlock a special deal as a listener to this series. Your first four weeks are free when you sign up at WashingtonPost.com slash parks podcast.